Welcome to the Youth Ministry Partners Podcast, encouraging leaders, sharing insights. We interview youth ministry experts in the field to reveal the tips and advice you need to succeed as a youth leader in today's ministry landscape. Visit youthministrypartners.com for detailed show notes and more information. And now your host, Ben Howard. Welcome to the Youth Ministry Partners Podcast. I am your host, Ben Howard. I am the lead editor for Youth Ministry Partners. I am joined today on the line by Jeremy Zach. Jeremy is the Director of Student Ministries at Claremont Presbyterian Church and is also a Navy and Marine Chaplain. Is that right, Jeremy? That's right, yes. And how are you doing today, man? Doing well. Doing very well. Thank you for... Uh, allowing me to be a part of this conversation, and uh, hopefully it's helpful for our listeners. I'm looking forward to it. We haven't gotten to talk how uh, military strategy applies to youth ministry yet, so this will be interesting. <laughs> uh, before we get into that, uh, I always like to ask just kind of like, how did you get into youth ministry? What was your path in to ministry, uh, and kind of what was your story? So what what kind of got you into the youth ministry world? What encouraged you to go down that path? Yeah, it was very unconventional. I didn't grow up in church. I grew up in Minneapolis, and you know, I was the oldest of three boys. So going to church, being a part of a Christian's faith, was MIA in my adolescence. Uh, in fact, my dad worked for a major airline, and he was a mechanic, and so he introduced me to airplanes very early on. And so we would go watch planes land. We would go to the, the hangar, and we'd just. Well, I was so fascinated by flight. Um, so I had a dream to be a pilot, and so um, I wanted to go to the Air Force, and so I actually went to the Air Force ROTC program in the University of Arizona. And I did it for two years and loved it. I had a slot. However, they wanted me to sign for 12 years. I just was really wasn't sure if I was ready to make a 12-year commitment uh, going my junior year in college. So I was like, I was going to hit a pause. Um, finish on my undergrad, and then I could go back to it and potentially officer finance school once I graduate. However, through this kind of discourse of discernment, I taken philosophy classes, and I kind of begin to ask some bigger questions of life. You know, does God exist? You know, is there a will for my life? And so I actually, my buddy in class was a Christian and turned me on to the New Testament, and so I really started reading the teaching of Jesus. It was so compelling so inspiring and for me it was the real truth and so at that point through a lot of conversations um i decided to transfer back to the university of minnesota because i you know i was on scholarship and so i was losing money um, and so i would get into state tuition and from there i not only placed my trust in jesus but then i found the church and i plugged in right away and uh they needed volunteers in the youth ministry <laughs> so i volunteered i did a lock-in uh, and I fell in love with it, and uh, that was 2002, and I then realized that there was a tug and a pull uh, to potentially go into professional youth ministry, and this time Google just came out, so I literally Googled how to be a youth pastor, and it gave me five <laughs> steps. So it was volunteer, <laughs> get a college education, go to seminary, get licensed, or get an internship, and then get a job, and I followed that because I realized I had to catch up. And so I literally graduated University of Minnesota. I packed my Honda Civic, and I drove across country, got in the fourth theological seminary, 
they were doing a lot of really neat research on um, Eastern Indian culture. And at that point, Sticky Faith didn't really, was, they were researching, and so they got a youth pastor job there. And I allowed them to do a lot of research in my youth group while simultaneously getting a Master's of Divinity. And uh, I just fell in love with it. And it was nice to be a, a, an academy that really prioritized research to really inform method and took the energy series. And at this point, you know, youth ministry was starting to become a, a pretty professional kind of gig. And so it was, I really enjoyed that and found myself working in kind of smaller than medium sized contexts to come really from the beginning to critical stage. So that was, that was how I kind of got into all this. And that, you know, like I said, it was the one period first time in 2003. So here I am. So you, you talked a little bit there about your background in uh, flight and wanting to be a pilot at one point, which does kind of lead us into more of what we're going to talk today about, which is uh, the the OODA loop, as, as you said it was pronounced. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about the background for that um, and, why, and, how, how, and how you learned about it and how it kind of applies yeah. to what we've been talking about there? Yeah, so especially the early on in being an Air Force ROTC, you know, learning a lot of different leadership strategies, they always did talk about this OODA loop. Um, and and so the the cool thing about it is it was actually invented by a deceased Air Force colonel in the 60s. Uh, and he was a top uh, Air Force pilot, fighter pilot, and so he developed this OODA loop. Uh, his name was John Boyd, um, and it was kind of more out of lecture and not so much documentation. So if you kind of look, it's really not talked about much. Um, and people really don't give John the credit because he was the one that really helped birth this idea and this loop because it birthed out of him trying to figure out how to do air-to-air combat very, very seamlessly in a lot of the different flight trainings that they were doing um, in, in the military. And so he birthed it out of this called this energy movability kind of theory to kind of then help F-14s, F-15s, and F-16s pilots to fly in very quick com- combative environments that were very uncertain, where they had to move very fast, and they didn't have time to think, but it had to become so intuitive for them to make very quick split decisions that were either really life and death. And so from that kind of a right there in the 60s, then it became a very, very key uh, strategy taught at a lot of different uh, flight schools within the military to teach pilots on how to do this. And so he spent a lot of time trying to figure out the human psyche and mindset for very uh, for leaders in very stressful, uncertain environments and how to perform very well in that. And so I actually, I first got introduced when I was in ROTC, but then I was just... Uh, in a briefing during one of my drill weekends with uh, some senior officers, and they were talking about this uh, as they were kind of talking to, to some of those junior officers about how to make better, well-informed, quicker, faster, more effective decisions um, out, out in the field. And so they, they talked a lot about this, this OODA loop. And so that was kind of when I was like, you know what? In my youth ministry environment, this is, this is very transferable because the ideas are pretty abstract. And it requires a lot of kind of critical thinking, contextual, and providing a lot of contextual meaning for what you're doing. And so I was like, this is this would be so helpful for youth ministers to know. 
And let's go ahead and just describe that and break it down. So it's it is an acronym. It's O O D A. So in case you are trying to Google this at home, um, let's <laughs> let's walk through the what what does O O D A stand for? Yeah, you bet. So so it's observe, orient, decide, and act. So those are the three steps that you kind of see as a, as in a loop. Uh, and so it starts with the observation. And then as you move through the observation, then you need to orient it, or, or sorry, orientate and kind of adjust. And then you decide, which means you kind of develop, develop hypothesis, and then you act and then you move. So those, that's the reoccurring loop that you just constantly keep, keep moving through. So it's a, it's a kind of a mental technique to think through as you encounter different situations or decision-making that you need to, to decide on. And as I was, I was, I was reading through some things that you had written on it. I was reading through a couple things that have been uh, written about it elsewhere on the internet. It seemed like one of the the major things was that it was designed to develop confidence in your own intuition, and to almost mm. and to almost like mimic the way your intuition works. Can you talk a little bit more about mm. like how it changes the way you think to kind of use that loop process? Yeah, so it's thinking patterns. So the idea is that you condition the way your mind works when faced with adversity. And so typically when adversity then really heightened anxiety, so either you, you, you know, that fight or flight, you know, either you're going to fight it or you're going to fly away or get away from it. And so the OODA loop was really designed to survive through it. And it really thrives off distraction. So the more, comfortable you are in uncomfortable situations, the better you're going to perform. And you have to trust your gut in that because you don't have time to do that. So it's really an intuition kind of muscle. And I know some people get all like spooky and kind of weird, like, oh, you know, trust your gut, like without data and intuition, but it really isn't. It's a muscle developed. And the more you do it, the faster you'll start to sense it and know because you're you're so used to and comfortable for chaotic environments that you're calm, you're collected, and then you're able to then have the confidence to move forward because you've been in a lot of uncertain situations and then you have the history and the past results to then drive you through it. So it is a cognitive kind of behavioral therapy you do in your head when you are confronted with con- with conflict. So the more and more you do it, the faster you're able to then get to the result without having to really worry so much about collateral damage, hoping that over time you can then begin to uh, trust your gut and then you become comfortable and confident in very uncomfortable situations. So here's here's my question, because as I was reading up on a lot of this, it seemed like it it was used in that kind of military context, then it started being used in, mm-hmm. in kind of business context, and the context in which it was applying to were typically um, competitive frameworks. So the idea that you would have an advantage on your opposition by both understanding the way they thought and by thinking quicker and acting quicker. So when you get into a more cooperative situation like youth ministry, what are some of the conflicts that you're reacting to and how is that kind of decision-making beneficial in that world? Yeah. And I think this is why I love it, because youth ministry is always of such a changing environment, and 
it is kind of looking as the, the future of where the church is going. So it's so important for youth ministers to learn how to deal with some unstable situations. And so I think one really helpful way is because it is a very collaborative and corporate environment. And so really building teams to help kind of think through this, through your, through your problem. So for example, like I, I have teams called VAST. So it's a visionary action support team. And so those are, that team is composed of parents and other adults, uh, about six to eight in the church. And so from there, when I'm looking and observing like where problems are, this is kind of the cabinet to then we work through these problems, um, using really the OODA loop on, on how we brainstorm for some very creative solutions. So, so for instance, oh, this, this group of individuals, churches want, you know, a family camp. All right, well, we don't have enough resources. You know, we're not even sure. You know, last time we did family camp, we had a very low attendance. So let's work through OODA loop and try to figure out a, a creative solution because it is a need. These are what people were saying. And so for this team, this vast team, to kind of help work, work through that. And I think you can do that with your students. You can do that with your parents. You can do that with your leaders. You kind of see it as a co-creative rather than a competitive uh, environment. So you're teaching others to think kind of this the same way um, as you're kind of using more of a partnership team based model for uh, for youth ministry as you kind of encounter a lot of different problems. And, and to, you know, I, I, I use it a lot, especially when, you know, just after church, parents pull me aside, hey, what do you think about this? So would you want to, you know, I have a boathouse and I would love for these people to do this, you know, and, and they kind of throw it on me and I, I kind of have to say, all right, where, you know, how observe, okay, where have we done a different events? And how, how successful were they? And uh, move right right into orange. Like, can we do this? Yes or no? Can I take action on this? If not, then I probably need to say no right now, and then we can move on. Or, I, or if I say yes, then then I need to then develop a hypothesis. Like, okay, how are we going to get this done? Who's going to be involved? When is it going to happen? And then we can act. So it really kind of helps not only manage my productivity into what I'm saying yes and no to, but it also really helps manage my decision-making kind of on the fly in these kind of conversations as I'm pulled in so many different directions, either with senior leadership or even with students or even with uh, other outside commitments. And so I, I think that's why it's so fun because it's so, uh, it can really apply from uh, just a single decision that has some problems where you can really begin to teach your team and implement that into how you actually design and create your, your ministry environment. And in your article, which uh, for those listening will eventually be published on youthministrypartners.com backslash blog, uh, go there, check out, check it out. Um, one of the things you talked about was that the using the OODA loop helps you challenge your assumptions. How does that work? How does it help you challenge mm. your assumptions? Well, that was straight John Boyd, right? Like, Boyd was, he didn't really have a very good reputation in the military because he was always looking and challenging the military kind of leadership theories. And so that was one of his big things was you have to look and challenge what's being said, what's assumed. And I think youth ministry is one big experiment, and so failure is really kind of encouraged and expected. And so I think what, if you're walking into a new new ministry environment, or I think it's so healthy every 12 months to just evaluate 
what you have been doing for at least two to three years. And is, is it gaining momentum? Is it losing momentum? And where do you need to start new momentum? And so I think that is where it just keeps you very humble and honest and grounded on how well your youth ministry is doing, where it probably needs some improvement. Uh, and so to me, if you look at the assumptions, it's probably, or challenge the assumptions, those are probably some really low, easy hanging fruit in your ministry to then get some really quick, fast wins that can immediately get some really great momentum. And so for a leader stepping into an environment or you've been in an environment, I would say, all right, what has been always done here or what have we been doing? And is it working? And how can we improve this through a collaborative method, really using the OODA loop to kind of help get us there? Because that's a, also in the, in the article, I talk a lot about how uncertainty really kind of provides new ministry opportunities mm-hmm. uh, because you can get like five youth ministers, which I, which is why I love networking youth ministry is because you have the conversations to really look at a lot of key problems that really youth ministries are kind of struggling with. And you, you can have five look at all the same problem with all like different outcomes. And I think it's so helpful to hear those perspectives and to then orientate, like what are the best ones for my context? So to me, if you're looking at, hey, I need to win somewhere, or maybe it's just been a really hard season of ministry, look at what's been done. Get a team to kind of begin to look at that uncertainty, and I guarantee once you kind of start to address it, there'll, there'll probably be some new opportunities to kind of emerge. But I will admit, it will be painful. It will be hard, because that's tough, tough work uh, to kind of help kind of bring through that. So my previous position was at Orange, and so we did – which is a family ministry uh, strategy nonprofit. And so we would help churches come all around the country uh, kind of think strategically. And one of the methods we do is called kind of the creative boards, where we just start with this big black board with little, like, kind of like the little pins that you stick in that can, like, stab you. <laughs> they hurt forever. And then with mail cards. And so we would always write, hey, here's the problem that we're trying to do. And then every idea, we would just throw it all out there. Because we, we believe... We start with the creative boards with stating the problem on top, and then there's everything is a yes. So whatever idea sticks. So then after all ideas have been captured, then we go and we would synthesize through all those ideas saying, how does this solve? And you would kind of begin to then start making categories and buckets and naming, because typically a lot of those ideas would fall into some very similar categories. And then from there, those categories you would then make a list and then some really clear action steps on how to solve or how to move the needle a little bit closer because you believe if you get the best people in the room asking the best questions, you're going to get some really great results. So again, that's, that's why I love youth ministry. It's because it's all, you're always having to innovatively and creatively figure out solutions fast. So this is all. This is fascinating to me. So there's a couple questions I want to ask here. Um, all of this seems like, like it seems very like ex- experiment. Experiments are at a premium because you're always looking for new information to observe, and that helps you kind of refine the hypothesis. Um, it's got a little bit of a little bit of scientific method in there. Um, yes. And one of the things that's surrounding that is that. Anytime you you choose to act, 
you are choosing to not do five other things at that exact point in time. <laughs> so as an editor, like that's my job. Um, one of the <laughs> one of the cliches that you learn as an editor is uh, you have to kill your darlings, which is huh. some is that to make things work, to make things fit. Sometimes you just have to kill things that you think are beautiful because they don't work. Um, so how do you take the big board of ideas or the world of hypotheses and say, I'm going to do this one? So how do you go from um, all, like the world of options to this action this time? You choose your focus. Yeah. And you just do it. <laughs> <laughs> that goes back to the, institu- the intuition people, thing, right? Right. Yeah, but the hope is that you have a team, so you're all agree. Hey, do we trust this? So I would say when we land on that, all right, let's take a vote. All right, scale one to ten. Ten, you're fully in. One, you're fully out. Let's go around the room. You're at an eight. You're at a four. You're at a two. All right, why? All right, how can we get your two to an eight? You know, and it, then it, they may have some really good arguments for why, and then you kind of then have to go back. It's a very frustrating process. You know, it's like you're finding gold. Like it takes so long to get to the core essence of the metal. And so that's really it is. And so the hope is that then repeating and repeating and repeating that then you can then keep reiterating and reiterating, which means you have to know your context and you give meaning to that context. And so hopefully you just understand that, that, that terrain, but you just have to have a fundamental belief that, uh, you know, having a very, very laser focus is going to be so much more impactful and effective. Uh, because it keeps one, everyone in line, keep, and it's going to be probably very memorable and makes it a priority for everyone. So you just kind of have to trim around. And, and then it fails, then you just go right back to the, you just can't take that, that, that too serious, you know? And so that, that is, it's a very, it's a frustrating process. And I think that's why the more you fail, the better you, you the growth that's going to happen and be stimulated in, in that. And so you just have to really, really hold it, hold it loosely and have that mindset of, Hey, this may not work and I have to be okay with that. And here's another question I have that's, it's been bouncing around in my head since I was doing the research and, and kind of getting ready for this conversation, which is how do you know when the best action is to not act? Because it seems like this entire thing does have a bias yeah. towards action. Um, I always think yeah. there's, there's a, a fairly famous um, story about uh, on penalty kicks and soccer that the, the goalie will always jump to the left or the right. So the best place to kick it is straight down the middle because the goalie never stays there. Um, but if they do, then you look like an idiot. So it's always these, so there's kind of this game theory of like, how do you know when the best thing yeah. to do is to not do anything? And as I hear that, like again, I, I know for some personalities, this mental model works a lot easier and a little bit more comfortable. And for others, it, it doesn't because it does require action. That's the goal. <laughs> like it's a funnel. It, the goal is to get you through the funnel to take action. Um, but it's also really relies a lot of them on deflection. Now for your question, how I would answer it. It's a great question. 
But I would say in the observation stage, you haven't spent enough time in the observation. So you need to to spend a little bit more time there. Now, it's a very fine line because, you know, that's a phrase like analysis by paralysis by analysis. analysis yeah. you know, it's kind of, this, right, the state of overanalyzing or overthinking in the situation. Um, and so you probably, you either you need to spend more time there or you you may need to ask the question, what, what are, what's hindering from taking action on this? And so, you know, really they would always, they always should tell us with, especially with action, because again, this is a military kind of leadership business type of idea. And so really action then produces results. And so that's, that's the aim. But they would say, you know, if you're not taking action, either you're being your own critic, you're stuck in your head. So what's that about? Or you're afraid. And so to make that action. And so you need to then go back to the very beginning of observation uh, and to spend some time doing that. And that's the art. That's the fun. And then the orientation is the science. I love how you've kind of said about the, the uh, scientific method because that's really what, it, what this is built. But using the observation stage where you kind of use more of the social sciences to kind of help inform uh, the scientific method. And there's, you, you then can apply in the, and to take action. And so, I, again, this doesn't, and the opposite, the opposite argument on a lot of this is this doesn't, the OODA loop is not, and gives people permission to make lazy decisions. And I think that's where the refining and keeping your focus really helps. Uh, because once you see it and you start to have some really good momentum, uh, you're, you're going there. And two, when I hear when people aren't taking action, to me means that there's not an inherent momentum of what they're already doing. So they're probably in the very beginning stages of this. Uh, because once you get in that, that, you know, that momentum and a lot of, a lot of these researchers now are talking about this flow idea, like when very high performing athletes or leaders, they, they get in a, into a state, an emotional state of flow and that it just becomes so intuitive on on what they're doing, that it's just it's just a series of actions that they're not even really thinking about, but they just intuitively know uh, on on how to do, you know. And so that was that was our that's how I would answer. That was a very long answer. I'm sorry, it's so long, but but I think you're you're hitting at something there. Well, I think is I, that if you're not willing, go ahead, go ahead. Ben. No, I, I I was just saying if if you're not willing to take action, then I would question the beginning stages of where and why that's not happening um, and, and kind of reverse engineering. Well, and that, like, part of what I was reading, there was, a, there was a line that really hit me that I'm trying to remember who wrote it. I didn't write down who wrote it, but I wrote down the line, which was learning to live with ambiguity and uncertainty is a necessary precondition for more opportunity. And it was basically... <laughs> Yeah, and it was and that that Good. seems to be the thing that is undergirding this is this is not how this is not necessarily a process of how to act when you have all of the information it's a process of how to act when you can't have all the information and when you live in That's good. And that lends itself towards um, you know, hypothesis and an experimentation all these, all these things when you just can't know how it's going to work. Um mm. so you have to just keep trying and refining and refining and which does go back to um i always so i always think about like uh 
when we when we pass laws in this country and people are like oh it didn't work on the first try i'm like of course it didn't it was a theory on the first try um you have to keep Mm -hmm. refining it and working it out and figuring out what's going to happen next um so i i really appreciate that idea of going over and over i like the loop idea of going over and over and over Mm -hmm. again through the whole process um yeah i love that it's just small incremental steps that that will get you some really great results it's not this huge leap you know it took so many missions to finally get to the moon they just didn't take one and like they landed right exactly so it's just that it's just it's inertia right like let's get this moment this momentum all right and we're going to start to wrap up uh, one of the questions i always like to ask is what is a story of a time early in your ministry career where you just kind of messed up um, maybe it, maybe it goes back to kind of that analysis paralysis thing. Maybe it goes back to, mm-hmm. uh, something else around the idea of kind of decision-making, but what was something where you kind of messed up and it was something that taught you a lesson that has really been instrumental for the rest of your ministry? Leading through change. Uh, I think, uh, you know, for some, you know, youth ministers, change is really exciting. And I think that everyone talks about change. Everyone's like, yes, I love change. But when change starts to impact others and how they see or do what they're currently doing, it starts starts to scare them. And so as a youth minister, you know, we're always like a kind of conversation here. We're always leading through change. And I think one of my biggest mistakes was is that you cannot lead through change by yourself. Uh, you have to have a collaborative team effort that is going to take a lot longer and a lot more conversations and you have to work together, collaborate, even though the pace isn't as fast as you want. So I had to learn really early on, and I messed up a lot and damaged a lot of relationships because I was just driving too fast. And so really building out kind of an emotional intelligence of the temperature of how you're leading people through change and how, how you're doing it. Because you have this idea in your head, and once people start to see it and then they start to question it, how this is affecting them and how you know, what this now new workflow or new ministry or new way of seeing or doing things is going to change the way they've done it. And that, that's really hard for people. And so I think for me, it was how you lead through change. You have to, you have to do the math, meaning you have to make a huge plan and preparation collaboratively. So everyone needs to see the plan and you need to discuss it before making any type of action. And that, to me, that would be the observation, right? Like that's, mm-hmm. that's where you're collecting the data and, and, and doing it. And then really you, you attack the problem and not people. I think it's always a really, really easy to attack people. Oh, well, they don't want to do that because they don't really truly see what I'm trying to, to do. You know, don't we all love God? You know, like it's so easy to like attack people, but not the problem. And so this makes it very not personal, but actually very focused on the objective. And don't give up. Like I think youth ministry is really, really hard. It really is. Uh, but if you keep that hopeful vision of why you got into this and you're thinking quickly and, and you're really honoring people and respecting, and you, there's some really cool things that can happen. And so for me, it was leading, leading through change and you give, you really work hard in your preparation. You give timelines, you give deadlines. And if you don't meet those deadlines, you know, it's okay. You, the, the, 
the vision will remain the same, the plans will always change. And you got to be okay with that and can't get frustrated. And it just takes a little bit to really help coach people to change, which means a lot of conversations, a lot of sideways conversations. Hey, how do you, how's this feeling for you? What do you think? What have you got? You know, is this hard? Is this easy? Um, and really kind of help guide people into this, into what you're, you're trying to accomplish. And so, uh, that, that would be what I would say is, is, is for, for youth ministers, when you lead through change, just be very sensitive and do the math. Don't quit and don't attack people. Attack the problem. That sounds great. And then the last question we always ask um, just before we take off today, what is one book, maybe it's a album, movie, TV show that's been inspirational for you that you would recommend to anyone who's kind of listening to this podcast right now? All right, so this book's very fascinating. Actually, I didn't read it. I did, I've been doing a lot of audiobooks. But it's called The the Last Lecture by Randy. I always butcher his last name. Randy Pauscher. It's P-A-U-S-C-H. But essentially, he, Randy, was a professor of computer science, and he he really helped design a lot of a lot of kind of the machines and a lot of the technology in, in Disney. Mm-hmm. And so he wrote this last lecture because he was dying of cancer. And he wanted to gift his children uh, this this lecture so when he died that they had a legacy to hold on to because he felt so bad because he was really kind of an absent father and really mean. And, and so his wife and him kind of, collaborate on this as kind of like a reconciliation for his life that he was going to really kind of pass on. And so this last, this last lecture is titled really achieving your childhood dreams. And he essentially goes through all these lessons of life, uh, that he learned uh, as a father and as a professor. And he's very smart and he was kind of at the ground up of really at Disney and trying to kind of help kind of create a lot of this stuff. And he's so smart. And so it was such a, a fascinating book because you've got to see into his world. You got to see into a lot of science and technology and you got to see what really kind of matters most. Um, and for us, it kind of always keep chasing after our childhood dreams is so, so they, I think he says it's not about how you achieve your dreams. It's about how to lead your life. And if you lead your life the right way, it's going to take care of itself and your dreams are going to come true. And so it was a very hopeful perspective coming from a man that was going through a lot of pain. I think that's a, it's a great way to end it. Uh, so for everybody out there, keep living your life to chase your dreams, try some experiments, do some fun stuff, <laughs> learn, see what works. Uh, thank you, Jeremy, for being with us today. And bad, bad. For everybody else, go ahead, uh, find us. You can find us online. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, rate and review us at iTunes. Tell us if you how much you liked this episode, which we hope you liked. Uh, and you can find us on youthministrypartners.com. Everyone, have a great day. Thank you for joining us for the Youth Ministry Partners podcast. Remember to check out the YMP store at youthministrypartners.com and get in on the conversation at Facebook and on Twitter at YM Partners. Youth Ministry Partners. Listen, learn, and lead.